Hey, good morning. We're so glad you came to join us today. We've come to join you today where you are in your living room or your dining room, wherever it is in your house that you've uh, got a screen or a tablet or your phone opened up to uh, worship with us today. Uh, we're excited to be able to be part of your family today and worship with you and share God's word. Uh, these are serious times, and I just want to share with you something a little more humorous and light as we begin I've heard that many families are adjusting to the new norm. For example, now young people are telling their parents and grandparents to stay in the house. I mean, that's a, a change in what we've done before. Um, I've learned that there are um, people teaching lessons they thought they'd never have to teach again. We thought we'd be dealing with flying cars in the year 2020. Instead, we're teaching people once again how to wash their hands and how to cough and sneeze appropriately. I know a lot of you are practicing social distancing, which is good, and you're not uh, shaking hands with other people. And I, that's all good. I'm not shaking hands with people, but it's not because of the virus. It's because of the shortage of toilet paper. <laughs> well, we're going to get in something very serious today because this illness is an all-out war, a pandemic that's, that's touched every part of our world. And there are people feverishly working uh, to find a vaccine that could be used. By the time the vaccine was found for the SARS flu, uh, it had already subsided significantly, but we don't have time to wait. It's so urgent right now that a vaccine is needed. And in just a, a few days, a testing will be done by some companies on actual people to see if this vaccine they've been trying to create will actually work. And that's good for now, but down the road, we're going to need more vaccines for other illnesses. And who knows, there could be even stronger viruses that come down the road. I want to talk to you today about the ultimate cure because we all suffer from a disease, a, not a disease of the body, but a disease of the heart or a disease of the soul. It says in the book of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It says the heart, the, the, the heart within us is desperately sick. Oh, desperately sick and we can't find a cure we can't fix it ourselves we need someone to help us and God has been working on a cure for thousands of years all through history moving uh, forward through promises through laws and rituals through the words of the prophets leading us to a point where the ultimate cure came in the form of a man named Jesus Christ and that's why in these weeks we are going back to the gospels to the book of John because I believe what we really need more than anything else during this time is to fix our eyes on Jesus because after this crisis is over, many of us are going to go back to routine lives or maybe the things we did before. But God wants to use this time in a significant way in our lives. I believe God wants to use it to draw us near to him, to, to help us realize that, that we need him desperately in our lives to not only heal our, our hearts of sickness, but to help us in so many other ways. And so my prayer for you as we've gone through this series and the next couple um, lessons as we look at the Gospel of John is that you'll draw closer to Jesus, hopefully closer than you've ever been with him before. I want to take a look at John chapter 19. That's where we'll be today. But I want to summarize some things that are found at the very beginning of that chapter. As you remember last week, if you were with us, Pilate, the Roman procurator, came before the Jewish crowd and presented to them two options. They could dismiss one criminal or so-called criminal, because of the Passover week. And so he presented Barabbas, who was a robber, and Jesus, who they claimed to be a king. And they wanted Barabbas to be released, and they wanted Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate wasn't real comfortable with that, so it says that he had Jesus flogged. And this is a type of flogging. It's a different word than maybe you're typically used to reading in Scripture. It's, it's a flogging that took place prior to his condemnation. So Jesus actually was flogged. It was a lighter beating than the one that he would receive later, the one where 
there's bones and, and pieces of glass tied to leather. Um, that, that flogging later is a different kind. It's a different kinds of instrument. It's a different kind of punishment. But this one, it was still painful. It was given to Jesus. And then Jesus was, um, was put before the soldiers. They wove a crown of thorns out of a thorny bush, pressed it on his skull to where the, the thorns pressed in, a blood pouring down Jesus' face. They put a purple robe on him. And they began to mock him in worship, say, Hail, King of the Jews. And it says that some struck him, you know, punched him in the face. I mean, Jesus is being treated so cruelly, so rudely. And the reason he's treated that way is because he claimed to be a king. Now, what's so wrong with that? Well, for the Jews, when they heard Jesus claiming to be a king, they had only one king, and that was God. And, and in real terms, it would be God's Messiah that he would send. But that's the only one who could claim to be king. And so if Jesus claimed to be that king, he, he was committing blasphemy, which was worthy of death. And if you go back to the Old Testament, it's real interesting that uh, when the Israelites claimed that they wanted to have a king like all the other nations, God said to Samuel the prophet, they have rejected me as their king because God always wanted to be king. He's always wanted to be king over you and over me. And when we reject Jesus, we're, we're treating Jesus like these soldiers treated him in this story. And the Romans also were concerned about Jesus claiming to be a king because by Jesus claiming to be a king, it meant that he was a threat to Caesar. In fact, the people say, hey, you're no friend of Caesar's if you let this guy go. And so Pilate was caught having to punish Jesus because uh, it's potential that Jesus could rise up and threaten Caesar. And they said that we have no king but Caesar. And I just want to ask you, if you were to fill out that sentence, I have no king but Caesar, what would you place on that line instead of Caesar? I have no king but, who would you put? Or what would you put? What would you put in that place? Because hopefully the only thing you'll put in that place is Jesus. I have no king but Jesus. He is my king. And when you call Jesus your Lord, what you're saying is, He's my king. That's the cure that God has wanted for us, to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as our king. It says that Jesus took his cross out to Golgotha, to the place of the skull. He was nailed on a cross between two thieves. And Pilate put a, a sign over him that said, in three different languages, uh, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the Jews got real upset because they wanted it changed so that it would say that Jesus claimed to be king, but Pilate wouldn't budge. It was fixed. It was as if, it was as if God said to Pilate, here's what I want. I want the truth about who this man is. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And that was placed above him. Where I want to focus though is three statements Jesus makes from the cross that are recorded in this section of scripture from the gospel of John. And each of them reveals to us what I believe is a cure for one of our greatest ills caused by sin in our lives. These are cures that not only can help us in the future, but can even help us right now. So let's look at the first statement. It's found in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. You can read along. It says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Uh, the first problem we encounter here is loneliness. And Jesus provides the cure for loneliness with what I would say is the family of God. He looks out there and he sees 
his mother, Mother Mary. And if you remember Mary, go way back in the Gospels to the birth of Christ. I mean, she was told by the angel before she even married Joseph, she had become pregnant, she would carry this child, he would be Jesus, he would save the people from their sins. And the scripture says that after Jesus was born, um, Mary uh, just treasured all these experiences, all these, all these moments in her heart. But it also says that a, a sword would pierce her soul. And that seemed real bizarre at the beginning of Jesus' life, but this has come the time where her soul would be pierced. And I, I can't think of anything more painful than for a mother to watch her child suffer. Uh, some of you remember, I have a sister who died in a car accident. And when my uh, sister Barb died uh, back almost 20 years ago, one of the most painful things was going to her funeral and looking at my mother. Because it dawned on me, no mother should ever look at her child dying. We, we bring our children in as mothers. And we're not supposed to watch them die. And so here Mary is. Uh, she's been with Jesus his, his whole life. I mean, she followed him. She, uh, she, she walked with him. We don't know what happened to Joseph, but Mary's always seen there following along with Jesus. When Jesus did his first miracle, when he turned the, the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, his mother was right there with him. In fact, her, his mother gave him an elbow and said, son, do something about this shortage of wine. And so he, he caused the water to turn into wine. And all through Jesus' ministry, there's Mary right there with them. And here she is at the very end, the foot of the cross, you know, weeping as she looks up at her son. And Jesus says, says, John, take her home with you. Let her be your mother. And I love the fact that in his most painful moment, Jesus is thinking about his mother because he doesn't want her to be lonely. Loneliness is a big issue. I know that some churches are having to adjust during this time of separation because people are feeling lonely. I know uh, one church had to change their song selection from He Touched Me to I Come to the Garden Alone. So we're all making adjustments. But loneliness, seriously, is a, is a big issue. In fact, I've heard that um, because of the extension of the uh, social separation to at least April 30th, that one of the biggest concerns is people dealing with loneliness and what comes with that. I mean, people turn to addictive behaviors. They turn to uh, pornography. They turn to alcohol, drugs. Um, some even turn to suicide. Loneliness is extremely painful. Did you know that the first problem God addressed in Scripture was loneliness? When God made Adam, God saw that it was not good for him to be alone. And you know what he did. He made Eve to be uh, the partner and companion of Adam. So God doesn't desire us to live in loneliness, God made us to be with people. I love Psalm 68, verse 6. It says, God settles the solitary in a home. Or, or even the New International Version says it in a more interesting way. God sets the lonely in families. God wants us to be attached to a family. And many of us have dysfunctional biological families. How many of you come from a dysfunctional biological family? Kids don't raise your hand, but parents, you can raise your hand safely in your own home. Um, but, you know, it's difficult to grow up in a healthy home, but God formed the church, a family of faith, to be a family of grace, a family where, where people who don't fit in anywhere else fit in. I, I've heard uh, or I've shared within my own church that I'm part of a Velcro family. It's called a Velcro family because people have, have just 
become stuck on each other. And these people, honestly, and some of you are watching, if you're in the Velcro family, type amen on the screen just to show you're one of them. But if you're part of the Velcro family, you know, we, we probably wouldn't have selected each other to be friends because some of us live far away. Some of us are very different from one another. But because of some things that we have in common, namely uh, our faith, our love for Jesus Christ, our, our love for parents, that we're all pulled together. And so uh, each summer we get together, sometimes 30, 40, 50, 60 of us who become part of this uh, increasingly expanding Velcro family. Well, the church is that Velcro family. We all come together because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. God becomes our father. You can call God your father. There's intimacy there. And uh, our brothers and sisters become part of that family. We become connected to them. And I love uh, the, the church being the family of God. And that's one of the most painful things for me right now is we can't meet as the family of God. The people that I meet with at 7.55 and 9.15 and 11 o'clock Sunday morning, I love you guys, I miss you. I can't be here to fellowship with you, see your face, to give you a, a hug, to talk with you and see how you're doing. And, but God has, God has uh, put us in that family so we don't feel alone. And I pray that the time when we can be reunited comes pretty quickly. Now, I want to... Uh, dismiss something that's a common statement that you hear in our culture, that everybody is God's child. And I would have to say that's not what Scripture says. Not everybody is God's child. Everybody's made in God's image. Everybody has dignity and value because they're made by God. But God gives you an invitation to be adopted into His own family, and you have to receive that invitation. In fact, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You have a right to become a child of God. The question is, do you want to be a child of God? Do you want to belong to his family? Do you want to call him your heavenly father? And if so, then you receive Jesus, believe on his name, and you will become part of that family. And so God, God dismissed the problem of loneliness in our lives or provided the cure for that through Jesus Christ. Right after that, it says this, Jesus, knowing that all was now, now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Uh, Jesus was thirsty, and they cured his thirst. And it was just exemplary of a deeper spiritual thirst. See, we have a, a, a thirstiness about us, not just a physical thirst, but a a spiritual thirst. And the cure for thirstiness is the presence of God's Spirit in our lives. Jesus is parched. He's hanging on a cross. I'm sure they didn't give him a water bottle that day. The sun's beating on him. Um, he can't even talk because his mouth is so dry. And the reason Jesus was thirsty wasn't because he needed thirst to like live a few more days. He's not going to live a few more days. He's only going to live a few more hours. But he needs moisture so he can speak. You and I, though, need Moisture, not just to speak, but to live. You can go weeks. I think you can go maybe up to 40 days without eating food. I know people who've done that. 40 days without eating food. You cannot go more than three days, we're told, without drinking something because thirst is so critical for our lives. When you have a thirst, you want that thirst quenched. And when we take our dogs outside, it's so funny, and we take them out for a walk, when, immediately when they come back in the house, they head for the water dish and start slopping off water. And honestly, we need water like that. We, we should be drinking more water. I always read that we should have, you know, eight tall glasses of water a day, and I'm lucky to get, you know, three or four tall glasses of water. One Sunday I was preaching. I got a little woozy preaching. I didn't know why. 
And uh, a nurse told me that uh, I hadn't been drinking enough water. And that's true. I had coffee that morning, but no water. We need water because we thirst. Now, in the Old Testament, there's an interesting story of the Israelites wandering in the desert. They're very thirsty. They cry out to Moses. Moses takes them to a rock and God tells them to strike the rock and then water flows out of the rock. That's miraculous. God provides water miraculously out of this mountain rock. But when you get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says of these people, they all ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink because they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Even though they got water from the rock, the New Testament writers say that rock was, uh, that, that whole incident was a reminder that the spiritual thirst was quenched by none other than Jesus Christ. He quenches thirst. See, we have a thirst for a lot of things in life. For example, we have a thirst for satisfaction, a, a thirst for success, a, a thirst for significance. And so we go out in our jobs or we go out in relationships or addictive behaviors trying to find those things that don't really satisfy us. They don't really give us the significance or success that we desire. And in Jeremiah, once again, it kind of describes what many people are doing. It says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What are you doing to satisfy your thirst? I have a feeling that, that there are many of us that are just flipping through our phone day after day, hour after hour, more than we ever did before. Why? Because we're thirsty for something. We're just thirsty. We want something of substance, something meaningful. And we're hoping we'll stumble across it flipping through Facebook pages or surfing online or, or with the clicker, just going through the TV programs, trying to find something. I mean, we're thirsty. We just don't know what we're thirsty for. And I want to tell you, I think I know what you're thirsty for. You're really thirsty for Jesus Christ. You're thirsty for what he has to give. And I don't know why, but many of us aren't even looking there. We, we don't think that's where our thirst is, but I want to encourage you. Do you know what I found recently? We don't buy soda anymore. You know, we used to love soda. We don't buy it anymore. Why? It doesn't taste good anymore. We've kind of gotten weaned from it. So now whenever I pick up a Coke, which I used to love, Coca-Cola or, or some soft drink, it just doesn't taste good anymore. And I've lost my taste for it. I, I love water and I love tea and coffee. Uh, my thirst is being quenched by something else. And I want to encourage you during this time, open your Bible. Start to read it. We just started a new Bible reading plan that you can go online to, to download. But take some time every day to drink from God's word. Take some time to pray. Uh, be in God's presence. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're all baptized into one body by one spirit. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. And then it says this, we were all made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit comes inside of the believer to be a source of spiritual nourishment. And it's likened to water that we are to drink. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the best ways to do that is just to stop pursuing these other things and pause and surrender yourself and say, God, speak to me. God, show me. God, fill me. And I really believe if you would stop to do that and take some time every single day, you'd find a new kind of fulfillment in your life coming from God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's cure for human thirst. And then there's one other statement Jesus makes uh, from the cross. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There's a cure for what I would call incompleteness. And that cure is the cross of Christ. Do you have things that are unfinished? I mean, we're good at getting things started. It's just so hard sometimes to finish. 
About 25 years ago, I went back to college, uh, actually to graduate school, to finish up my master's degree. I had started it back in the early 90s, went off to work at a church and never actually finished my degree. But there was a part of me that says, I just need to finish. I need to finish my classes. I need to finish my papers and, and get this thing done. And finally, when I did, and I got to walk across the stage and shake the hand of the school president, get my diploma. I mean, it was, a, it was a, just a beautiful moment because I had finished something that I had started. You know, we desire to finish. And there's such a good feeling when you can finish. But the problem is we go through a lot of areas of life, particularly the spiritual areas, wishing we could do more. I mean, think about this. If you knew you were going to die in just a few days, let's, let's just say... It may be the flu, it may be some other thing, but if you knew the timetable and you knew you had just, say, a few weeks to live or maybe a year to live, wouldn't you try to improve your spiritual resume from here until then? I mean, wouldn't you want to go to church faithfully? Wouldn't you want to give generously? Wouldn't you want to pray you know, profusely? Wouldn't you want to read your Bible just so faithfully? I mean, you do all these things because you're trying to finish well. You want to finish well so God would see you as acceptable. But I want to tell you, you can never do enough. It's kind of futile to try to improve on what God has already done because, see, when Jesus went to the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say, you go finish it. He didn't say, you go do it better. He just says, I did it for you. It is finished. And it's one Greek word. It's a, it's a word uh, to telestai in Greek. And sometimes it may sound like a word of resignation, like, ugh, it's finished. Finally got it done. No, it's, it's a word that actually was used on the battlefield when a war was won and they said, it is finished to tell us die. It was a sign of victory. They completed it. What they set out to do, they'd finished. And so when Jesus was on the cross, this wasn't a word of resignation. When he shouted out to, to tell us die, it was victory. Now, what did he finish? Well, for one, he finished his suffering. I mean, the worst part of it was already done. The nails were driven through his feet, through his side. And after he died, the spirit would be put in his side. But all the, all the suffering, the physical suffering was done. The spiritual suffering was already done. The darkness that came over the land representing uh, God's judgment on sin already happened. So it, it was finished. You know, the suffering was finished. The sacrifice was finished. Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. No more sacrifices. It was done. No more priests to offer sacrifices. It would be over. It would be finished. Um, Satan would be finished. He'd be doomed. This would be the end of him. This was kind of the nail in his coffin. Satan thought he could trick Jesus and, and kill Jesus, but we'll find out next week with the resurrection, Jesus defeated even Satan's worst tricks. But for us, for you and I, we need to know that sin and death was finished. Sin and death was finished. That because of Jesus' death on the cross, he did what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a life we could never live to pay a price we could never pay. So Jesus lived the perfect life. And when he went to the cross, he was the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish who died for our sins. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He paid it all. There's nothing you can add to it. So you, you can't improve upon your spiritual resume except by this. Just accept Jesus as your payment for sin, as your redeemer, as your sacrifice. He paid it all for you. You can't add anything to it. This word in the Greek actually is in the perfect tense. It means a, an action in the past has benefits that extend to the present. So what Jesus did then extends even to today. 
You don't have to work for salvation. You don't have to achieve for salvation. The word D-O-N-E spells done, replaces the word do. It was already done. It was finished. You can't do it for God. That's why we don't strive. We don't work our way to be saved. We accept the salvation already achieved by Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've ever done that before, but surely in times like this, as you're thinking about your life and what lies ahead, um, something that lies ahead for each one of us is death. And it could be from the flu, but it could be a number of other things. Some things that we see coming, oftentimes things we don't see coming. And I want to ask you, after death, then what? See, Jesus, see, Jesus is the ultimate cure of our loneliness. He's the ultimate cure of our thirstiness. He's the ultimate cure of the incompleteness. And maybe you feel incomplete in your relationship with God. But if you let Jesus come in, if you receive him, if you believe on his name, you get to be part of his family, to have your sins forgiven, to have that thirst quenched once and for all forever. And so during these difficult times, God is trying to get your attention. He's trying to get my attention to remember that he is the ultimate cure of all the wrongs that are in our lives. And we need to surrender ourselves to him. I'm going to close here with a prayer. And uh, Pastor Dustin will come again in just a little bit to tell you how you can let us know of any decisions you've made. But if you've never said a prayer like this, I just want to lead you. Wherever you are, young kids, older adults, doesn't matter where you're living, you can pray right where you are, something like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on that cross for me, for paying my debt for my sin so willingly. And Jesus, I believe that you really did die on the cross. I really do believe you rose from the dead and I accept you as the king of my life. I do believe you are the rightful king and I submit myself, I surrender myself to you right now in Jesus' name. I wanna live for you. I wanna walk with you on this earth so one day I can walk with you in heaven. And so today I announce my loyalty and allegiance to you. Wash me clean of my sin. May your Holy Spirit come and live inside of me. And may I walk with you now and forever in Jesus' name, amen. We had someone last week respond and they wanted to get baptized because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And we're not baptizing people in our church right now. Uh, we will when we get back into meeting together when we can have close contact. But if you've accepted Jesus Christ, if you need to know the next step of faith, if you need to be baptized, if you need some instruction of where to go next, let us know in that response form and we'll be in touch with you. Thank you. We'll see you next Sunday on Easter.